Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet to the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. How you doing, my good friends? Thank you so much again for your time today. Now, we've been through a few stories from the Appalachian Mountains spanning a bunch of different topics. Anybody listening might have realized that there's at least one topic that I haven't touched on yet. That would be snake handling, as it's popularly called. It wasn't because I forgot about it or anything, I just hadn't got around to it yet. If you've been waiting on it, well, this is your episode. I myself have personally witnessed the good folks of the mountains take up the serpent, as they call it. Serpent is what the preachers call this type of, well, for lack of a better term, worship. Uh, That's what they call the snakes serpents because the word serpent to them means deadly viper it ain't good enough to grab up a garter snake no sir it's got to be the full-blown pit viper complete with a whole face full of poison that it's just more than willing to give you a taste of if you hold your mouth wrong or look at it wrong while you're holding it sit on back there and let me tell you about the serpent handler on a mission Now, the origins of serpent handling came out of the old folk traditions of the Appalachian Mountains, which is a place, after all, where there's just no shortage and never been any shortage of scripture and snakes, for that matter. But contrary to popular belief, the religious snake handling practice only became nationally known about 1910 when a traveling preacher named George Hensley started dragging those serpents out right in the middle of sermons so he could pass them around. The practice really didn't come out of the earlier times, as most think, because pioneers had better sense than to mess with the deadly snake. The good Reverend Hensley did that, of course, after he pointed out the verse in Mark 16, 18, where handling serpents is supposedly listed as one of the signs of those faithful to God. Mark 16, 18 says, They will pick up snakes with their hands and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. 
Yes, folks, the drinking of strychnine goes right along with the handling of snakes. Now, Reverend Hensley claimed that all of that was a direct command straight from God himself to snag up one of these deadly things and wrap yourself up all in it while down in a bottle of poison. I don't know about you, but when I read that chapter of the Bible, it don't negate Matthew 4, 7, where Jesus says, Don't put the Lord thy God to the test. And me, that's exactly what's going on here. I think God gave us a little bit better sense to do some of these things. For a while, Reverend Hensley's colleagues agreed with him. This all just happened to take place back when pretty much all of Appalachia is still caught up in the Great Revival. Now, the Great Revival was a wave of holiness and Pentecostal evangelizing that swept across the country and promoted ecstatic, emotionally charged forms of worship. Followers were compelled by the power of the Holy Spirit, or as some in the mountains say, Holy Ghost, to speak in tongues, cast out demons, or heal by the laying on of hands. I don't doubt any of that. I myself once saw a man who was deaf since birth have his hearing restored right in front of me. That was a sight to see. He couldn't conceive what just happened to him at first, so I'm not doubting anything as far as what God can do. It was also felt that any man could preach a good message if he felt the spirit moving in him. Serpent handling was stepping the whole thing up a notch or twelve, I think. These were powerful services that drew crowds of believers and, of course, skeptics as well. Despite it all, snake handling spread like wildfire with all kind of congregations popping up like cornflowers all over the mountains. People were taught that the snakes transformed from deadly symbols of evil into conduits of the will of God. In a sermon that at the height of his popularity, Reverend Hensley compared serpent handling to biblical deliverance. He compared it to Daniel in the lion's den or Jonah in the fish's belly. But it, that was before your time, he'd say. I'll show you something of your time. I'll show you how to handle a rattlesnake and you all know the result of a rattlesnake. Soon reporters, who just happened to know the result of a rattlesnake too, started writing articles about all the fatal snake bites which showed up in the New York Times, in the Chattanooga Free Press, and uh, about any newspaper who'd listen. In 1955, there had been at least 35 people killed while handling snakes. One of them was the now 75-year-old Reverend Hensley, who was killed by a five-foot rattlesnake in a broiling hot Sunday afternoon in Florida during one of his sermons. By then, the holiness and Pentecostal churches, being that they weren't exactly in the business of killing folks, had disavowed the practice, and nearly every state in Appalachia had banned it, except for West Virginia, where the, it's still legal to this day, as far as I could find. Did that stop it? Oh, no. There were a few serpent handling churches that just wouldn't quit. Again, the resourcefulness of uh, us hillbillies came to the rescue, and they went underground, holding out in the deep hills and backwood communities of Appalachian Mountains. They developed their own traditions outside of any of the other denominations and pretty much independent of each other, too. For a while, they were one of the mountain's open secrets, seen by most outsider communities as backwoods, 
backwards people shaking their snakes, slugging poison, and rating right up there with Johnny Carson's best joke. Now, after all this came a young preacher named Glenn Summerford. Glenn was born in Alabama in 1945, just after the Great War, and he came up poor and hard, in fact, real hard. When Glenn was a little feller, he was told by his mother, Annie, that his father didn't want anything to do with him or her, so he'd run off, leaving them to fend for themselves. It wasn't all she told him. In fact, the two of them had moved to different places two or three times, maybe four times a year, because his mother said that if Glenn's father found him, he'd kidnap Glenn and take him off somewhere. In 1952, when Glenn was about seven years old, his mother married Glenn's stepfather, Willie. Willie had been in the Special Forces during World War II, so you can imagine what the man went through. Willie was exactly what Glenn needed because he'd spent most of his entire life to that point being bullied and nearly by nearly everybody that he came in contact with, including his own mother. She'd grab up whatever she could get her hands on and knock him half senseless as a form of punishment whenever she thought it necessary. She used her hairbrushes, books, fly swatters, whatever she could reach. Willie took right to Glenn, and even though Willie had three children from another marriage, Glenn was his favorite. They started spending as much time as they could together, for Willie would teach Glenn some of the skills he learned in the Special Forces. After noticing Glenn was pretty much everybody's punching bag, he taught Glenn how to fight. Being that he himself was a black belt in the martial arts and it wasn't long before everybody was leaving Glenn heck alone. By the time he was 15 years old, though, he'd apparently developed a taste for cracking noses and eye sockets. That's when Willie helped him arrange to fight bare-knuckle fighting. The first thing I thought about when I found out that bit of information was the movie Ever Which Way But Loose. All Glenn needed was an orangutan named Clyde, and, well, he'd be set. Anyway, these fights are, in reality, set up like tournaments. If you win the first fight, you move on to the next fight, and then on and on until you face the final fight, where the winner takes all. Glenn went through the whole thing like a dose of salts. He easily whipped everybody he faced. Nobody likes seeing this now 16-year-old punk tearing everybody a new one, but there wasn't a whole lot they was going to be able to do about it. This was about the time Glenn decided to reach out to his birth father, who he found was living in Chicago. This is where I pictured Johnny Cash's song, Boys Named Sue, where the son finds his dad and they fight becoming a reality. But... That's not what happened at all. Glenn's father was now a wealthy man and was tickled to death that his son wanted to see him. In fact, he wanted Glenn to move in with him and stay there. It seems that dear old mom had flat out lied. Glenn's dad had tried many times to find him. Not, to, not so he could kidnap him, but ask him if he wanted to come live with him. But due to the fact that they'd moved so many times and so much that, well, their old dad had no idea where they was. His dad even set up a bank account for Glenn and put money in it for him. Glenn never took any of it because he said he wanted to make it on his own. So he started finding the bare-knuckle fights in Chicago. 
and up there they're put on by the mob. He went through 30 rounds of fights and was never even come close to being hit, let alone beat. He got hit one time in the ribs, which cracked a rib, but that was all. He even won a 1956 Ford, which was the grand prize for one of the fights. He did manage to make the mob mad at him, which probably ain't hard to do. The last fight he had, he wasn't just getting it in it to win the prize money. He was Pete Rose and the Spectators. So he would place a bunch of side bets on himself because the odds were always against him because he was so young. So not only did he win the prize money, but he fleeced everybody that came to bet. That didn't go over too good. After the final fight, Glenn was on his way out when about 15 people jumped him. He managed to leave six or eight of them stretched out on the ground before somebody cracked his skull with whatever they could find, knocking him out and taking his winnings. That's when he decided to go back to Alabama, and I don't blame him. So, after he returned home, he married Doris, who he'd, he'd actually known from his first grade class. He'd told her back then that he was going to marry her, and by golly, he did. Doris didn't much care for the fighting Glenn was doing, even though he was so good at it, that, <clears throat> and he had intentions of one day maybe going pro. Now, but he gave it up and took a job at the dairy farm. Times are hard, and so was the work. Anybody who's ever worked on a dairy farm knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's seven days a week, 365 days a year, no holidays, no breaks. Cows got to be milked and fed twice a day, regardless. That, along with all of the repairs and upkeep, can wear a feller down quick. Trust me, I know. That's not what got Glenn, Glenn though. It was working like he did and still not making enough to really get by. He had four children by now, and the youngest was 18-month-old daughter, Sarah, and he wanted to provide for them. He knew that he could make extra money by going back to the bare knuckle circuit, so he arranged a few fights and did well at making some extra money. He was all betting on himself and fleecing the crowd, too. One thing that Glenn realized early in the fight game was to antagonize your opponent to throw him off his game just like Muhammad Ali used to do. He arranged a fight one night where he picked the wrong <clears throat> one to do that to. He called the man everything in the book but a fighter. Then he hit the guy so hard that his eye popped out of his socket and knocked him out completely. Needless to say that when Popeye woke up, he and all of his friends were as mad as mad gets. By this time, Glenn was working at a garage where he handled the repairs of all the vehicles at the dairy farm. Now, I'm not sure if it was still at the dairy farm for sure, but that's what I, I found in the uh, information I read. Uh, Glenn came uh, home in the trailer one night, not long after the Popeye incident, where he decided to lay right down on the floor beside his son's bed. Next thing he knew was that his son was waking him up and the entire trailer was full of smoke. It was on fire. Glenn leaped to his feet, slung the TV through the window, and started chunking kids through as fast as Doris could hand them to him. He saw that Doris was on fire, so he threw her out and jumped out himself, just as the whole thing went up. 
he saw that Doris was burned and needed to get her to the hospital, so he started putting children in the car and realized that uh, little Sarah was still in the trailer. So he was headed back to get her when his cousin, who weighed <clears throat> over 300 pounds, tackled him to the ground and managed to keep him from going back in. The trailer was just <clears throat> gone in a matter of minutes. Glenn took off to the car, headed to the hospital, thinking at least he could save the rest of them, but not before he realized that the car keys were still in the house. So he managed to hotwire the car so he could leave. He passed an emergency vehicles which were headed toward his house going so fast that a state trooper who saw him tried to catch him, but he was at the hospital five minutes before the trooper even got there. He didn't waste a second. We who live in these old mountains know that bad things usually happen to in groups or three or four for some reason. One thing just ain't bad enough, so I guess when it rains, it pours. Glenn's half-sister had died a week earlier. Doris's grandmother had died three days earlier, and now Glenn had lost his only daughter in a fire that he knew to be revenge for winning that fight with Papa, though he could never prove it was him. Folks, we're just getting started with Glenn's hard times. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend with Larry Bentley. To say the least, Glenn was mad. Being mad is one thing, but when you're hurt on top of being mad, that pumps it all up to another level. Once he made sure that his family was going to be okay, he went to see his stepfather, Willie. He was hell-bent on finding Popeye and making him pay. Willie was able to talk, talk to Glenn and calm him down, and Glenn promised Willie that he wouldn't find him and kill him. Just a few days later, wouldn't you know, Willie died. Now, as if Glenn's marbles weren't already falling out all over the place, that sent him right over the edge. He started spending all his time and money hanging out in pubs, fighting, and drinking. He himself even stated later that he thought he actually had a death wish. And as more often than not happens when tragedy strikes a family, Glenn and Doris ended up separating. Glenn kept doing his thing while Doris just wished they could work it all out. That was until Glenn met Darlene in a bar one night. Now, I couldn't find a whole lot on Darlene either other than the fact that she had been in trouble with some things and that it ended up costing her child that she wasn't able to get back on her own. Whether it was actual love or maybe just to help Darlene get her child back, I couldn't say, but the two were married. Yes, he was still married to Doris, so Glenn used his stepfather's name when he married Darlene. It wasn't long before Doris found out that they'd been married and of all things, they did it on her and Glenn's anniversary. So she was uh, what we call in the mountains, P-I-S-T, pissed, and planned to kill them both. But thankfully for her, she never actually got around to it. Finally, in 1976, she divorces Glenn and just lets the whole thing go, which is probably the best for everybody. You gotta know when to just pee on the fire and call in the dogs. By this time, Glenn had been pretty much drunk for years. He'd been to jail for breaking and entering, and all he seemed to do was fight and get a few bucks and drink it all up. 
Somewhere through it all, he and Darlene had a son named Marty. And Marty took to Glenn, and they really got along well as he grew up. Just after that, Glenn was home all by himself, where he was going about the daily business of tying another one on. When two men showed up at the door, they said they were outside when God told them to knock on the door and pray for the feller inside. So, wouldn't you know it, for some reason or another, Glenn felt the calling and prayed with them. He said that he felt something happened to him that day. He couldn't read that well, but he wanted to read the Bible, so he locked himself in his room in a 30-day fast where he prayed. Once he emerged from the lockdown, he said that he was a changed man. He now wanted to attend church and live right. It just so happens that he and Darlene had talked about doing that very thing on several occasions, but when it got right down to it, it was just easier to grab another bottle and try to find the bottom of it. This time, they both decided to do it. Now we know that he truly did come up with the hard way, don't we? wasn't long before he decided to take on a role of a preacher man. He felt that the Spirit had called him and gave him the good word. In 1981, Glenn and Darlene rented an old gas station where they opened their own church called the Church of God with Signs Following, where they proceeded to yank up the serpents and drink the strychnine. There were some services where they dump out about 45 snakes and run their fingers through them. Glenn had even been bitten a few times but would always heal up seeming to be completely unharmed by it all the services at the church grew and they had a few dozen members who were fiercely devout to glenn's teaching glenn would lay hands on the sick and cast out demons then grab up the serpents this went on until october 4th of 1991 on that day ems received a 911 call to the house near scottsboro in a crew were dispatched to the scene. They were asked to come without lights or sirens, which they did. They met Darlene along a dirt road leading to the house. She had a bite on her left hand from a snake that was beginning to turn black. The ambulance rushed her to the hospital where it was determined to be a rattlesnake bite, so she was transferred to a hospital with antivenom for treatment. Now that would have been that, and we all know that uh, these things can happen. If you're going to mess with a snake, you're going to get the fangs sooner or later. But suddenly Darlene claimed that she was held at gunpoint by Glenn and forced to stick her hand into a whole box of poisonous snakes. Darlene said that the whole thing started on Friday night when she and Glenn accused, or when Glenn accused her of having an affair with another preacher. He forced her hand into a snake cage where she was bit for the first time and denied medical attention. But that wasn't the end of it. The mess went right on into Saturday night when Glenn, in another drunken rage, grabbed Darlene by her hair and dragged her to where a shed where he kept 15 of his prime poisonous snakes. The Reverend Summerfield gave her a choice. She could stick her face or hand in the box. Of course, Darlene chose the latter. He took a pipe and hit the cages real hard so the snakes get all worked up and mad. And then he grabbed her by her hair, she said, and he would push her face in if he didn't stick her hand in there. 
He said, I, I had to die because he wanted to marry another woman. By the time paramedics arrived, the snake venom had already began to take effect. The EMT stated that the venom could have gotten to her heart and killed her. Needless to say, this led to charges against Glenn, charges of attempted murder. In fact, so he was pounced on, arrested, and dragged off to jail for processing. He was released on bond, though. Glenn had a whole different tale of what happened, which he told during his trial. In the days leading up to the so-called Saturday night attack, Glenn said that Darlene hadn't been acting right. He admitted that they had some marital problems. He said that at the time I was real close to the Lord and I wasn't really paying no attention to her. He says that Darlene believed he had fallen out of love with her and turned to the comforts of another man for attention. So far, everything he said was supported by many witnesses who attested to Darlene was very sexually aggressive with the men at church and behind the pastor's back. Sounds like she had another type of snake handling in mind, don't it, folks? According to Glenn, Darlene kept goading him with the details of all of her affairs. He said that he thought that she was trying to get to him or maybe work him up to where he'd punch her or something. But he'd said he'd never do that. That's why she could then have him locked up and divorce him and keep custody of Marty so he wouldn't do that. When he didn't take that bait on that one, Glenn says that Darlene took things up a notch. She told him that a while back she would had been sleeping with both of his older sons from his previous marriage while he was away on business for the church. His eldest did say that Darlene had made him have sex with her since he was 12 years old. The other one denied that he ever did anything of the sort. Glenn said that in spite of it all, Friday night, October 3rd, was pretty quiet. He said that Darlene did say that she had been bitten by one of the pet snakes, but said that there was no evidence of swelling or, or even bleeding going on, except for maybe a little scab where a raccoon had bitten her a week before which was confirmed by their son, Marty. They ran errands around town the next morning on Saturday, and Glenn and Darlene seemed to be doing a lot better. He added that if she'd been bit on Friday night, he wouldn't have been going places on Saturday. She'd have been sick. A clerk at the video rental store where they stopped said that uh, she didn't notice any swelling on Darlene's hand at all. Glenn said that he went to bed early on Saturday evening and woke up later that night to find Darlene gone and a suicide note on the table that wasn't even the first one she had written either. Their son Marty confirmed that too. The trial lasted only two days. The jury found Glenn Summerfield guilty of attempted murder due to his having an arrest record. He was given a mandatory 99-year prison sentence. This despite Glenn's attorneys bringing forward a 23-year-old witness from their congregation named Tammy Flippo. She testified that Darlene was actually bitten while trying to kill her sleeping husband. She told me that she had got Glenn so drunk that he passed out. She then went to the shed and got a snake to put on him and let it bite him instead. But uh, it ended up biting her before she could do that. In 2003, Glenn managed to escape from prison when he slipped right out, out of sight during a work detail. He was found 45 minutes later hiding in a dumpster. He got 30 years tagged on to extra for his sentence for that one. 
Darlene was relieved with the verdict and felt justice had been served, but life after the trial in the small town, well, that wasn't too easy. Many of Glenn's followers believe that he's innocent. This includes his son, Marty. Darlene said that she'd got up at church and tried to tell him what was going on, that beating on me, you know, that kind of stuff. But they didn't believe me. They started trying to cast devils out of me. Today, Glenn sits in a prison cell in Alabama, now 76 years old. As far as me having an opinion on this whole mess, well, this one is such a twisted mess that I couldn't tell you what actually happened. I can say this, though. If I was on the jury in that trial, I sure would have had a hard time convicting Glenn on the evidence presented. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our story today. It was a real mess. <laughs> if you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please, wherever you're at. If you like even more episodes of World of Murder Mystery and Legend, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend, and The Deviant Report, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month. For extra episodes of all three, just run on over to anchor.fm or over at Spotify, and find Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend where you can look it up and they'll take care of you over there. Please join us on the Facebook group and Twitter at Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend and I will see you then. <laughs>